0: My friend, stop! We could tear it down, but we'd be tearing down a part of ourselves. We're the sauce
1: on your steak. We're the cheese in your cake. We put the spring in Springfield. We're the lace on the nightgown. The point after touchdown. Yes, Yes, we we put put the spring in in Springfield.
2: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we saw it for the first time, we realized hey, that's where that Simpson joke comes from. Regardless, each week we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen, or hasn't seen in a while, come together, and discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the man who puts the spring in Springfield, the Sheriff Ed Earl to my Deputy Fred Willikins, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you doing today, buddy?
0: I feel slicker than cat shit on a linoleum floor. <laughs> okay.
2: Wow. <laughs> Good. That's...
0: That's inspired so,
2: by yeah. our good
0: friend Burt Reynolds.
2: <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, good old Burt. We're going to get into it. Well, if it wasn't clear from the opening, we will be talking about the episode Bart After Dark from season eight of The Simpsons. My arguably, I think we've discussed this. This is like a might be my favorite season or like certainly my favorite showrunner era. And, uh, yeah, this is the one where Bart goes and works at a house of burlesque, I believe is what Marge refers to it as, <laughs> yes. or as Belle refers to it as the, what does she say to Bart? The, it's the, uh, it's tr- for
0: the back house. <laughs>
2: the back house. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. And we're also talking about the movie that this oh, yes. episode's based on.
2: Of course. Uh, well, well uh, it,
0: very the plot, loosely. The plot is yeah, based yeah, on. Yeah, loosely based inspired on. Inspired by, let's say, which is The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Um. A movie that, like, I had never heard of. I feel like it barely existed in my consciousness. And I was very surprised to find out that this was a big movie.
2: Yeah. It's a movie that obviously, well, like, spoiler alert, I guess, like, neither of us had seen. I was vaguely familiar with it. I guess I was familiar that it existed because it was one of those musicals that I knew existed. And I was just like, what the hell is this? Along with, Mm -hmm. and this is an actual, this exists. (laughs) There is a Debbie Does Dallas musical, like oh, a, like an, <laughs> uh, like a stage show based on the movie Debbie Does Dallas. I don't believe that there's any nudity in, or on-stage sexual intercourse, but anyway, yeah, it was one of those things of like when I in university kind of like started digging more and more into like the deep cuts of theater. I discovered that like oh yeah, there's this thing called the Best Little Horror House in Texas, and I was just like what in the hell? Okay, yeah, sure. what is but, it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, it sounds almost like a Mel Brooks kind of situation. Right. And I was surprised to find out that it's not, and it's actually pretty good. But we'll, it's well, we'll get into it. Yeah,
1: we'll yeah, get into
2: it. it. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. So let's talk about The Bart After Dark, and specifically the big show-stopping number, which may be, yeah, I, certainly I would have to say, like, top five Simpsons musical moments. Oh, yeah. The classic We Put the Spring in spring.
1: Yes, we put the spring in Springfield! We're that little extra spice that makes existence extra nice! A giddy little thrill at a reasonable price!
0: Our only major quarrels with your total lack of morals!
1: Our skimpy costumes ain't so bad! They seem to entertain your dad!
0: interesting because like even though this episode is based on the musical movie the best little horror House in texas this song is clearly not inspired no. by that musical it's a completely different kind of song right yeah wholly original not yeah. one of their like
2: parody songs like you get in the sherry bobbins episode or even the like my fair lady episode it's just like an original simpsons song but it right. it's sort of i guess you could say it's driving the plot a little bit but it's also just kind of like here's an opportunity to be fun and silly and do a fun show-stopping number
0: it's totally driving the plot because it's a persuasion song right homer gets up and says no we can't tear this down because it's this is very much like best little horrors in texas because like it would be tearing down a part of ourselves very interesting but the song itself is kind of like there's a musicologist a canadian musicologist actually named Darrell bowman i believe is his name who wrote a huge long article about a lot of the different musical numbers in The Simpsons, and he talks about this one. He says that it's sort of like inspired by 1920s Dixieland jazz. And potentially also, I I think this makes a lot of sense, the sort of revival of that in the 1970s by none other than one of our favorites, Bob Fosse, right? Right. You get like Chicago is sort of a revival of that 1920s vibe. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And he says that this actually even... He kind of is a bit like a sped up version of All That Jazz from Chicago. Okay. In terms of the, the type of song that it is and, and musically and all of that. And I was like, oh, interesting. I wouldn't have put that together, even though mm-hmm. like I love Chicago, I love Bob Fosse, but I wouldn't have quite put that together. And then I was listening to the commentary, actually, for this episode. And when they get to the parts where they're really in the burlesque house, David Silverman says, like, I always wanted to draw, like, Bob Fosse girls, like chicks. <laughs> oh, no that's way. What, that's what he says. And I was like, that is so interesting. Because it's not something that really gets referenced that much on the show. But, like, mm-hmm. it's interesting to see them kind of dive more into the sort of Bob Fosse aesthetic, right? Of, like, women in bowler hats and fishnets and all well, that. I
2: that. Was- I was going to say, like, obviously, for people who have seen the film All That Jazz, which uh, this is confusing because we keep saying All That Jazz. There's a movie All That Jazz and a song All That Jazz. Right. But in the movie All That Jazz, there's a few flashbacks to the Joe Gideon character who is basically like an analog for Fosse himself and his early days of working at burlesque shows and very much is similar to what we're seeing in the Maison Derriere. But then I thought it was also interesting because one of the films that we like sort of teased maybe talking about for this season, but the reference is very, very slim, and I think we kind of just got scared and we're like, we can't do it, but uh, Cabaret. I think they're also doing a reference to Cabaret in this because there's a shot, it's like a low angle shot of the burlesque dancers when Bart first arrives, and they're Mm -hmm. wearing the fishnets and the bowler hats, and it reminds me, there's a very, very similar shot in Cabaret. I can't remember the name of the number, but it's late in the film, and it's when the MC ends up showing up as one of the cabaret girls, and then they start like goose stepping, and it's like a Nazi right. thing. I think that that's referencing cabaret. And then obviously, the other reference is when I think it's the episode with Jay Sherman. Yeah, the, yeah, it the, is. The film it's festival, the, it's the yeah. Film
0: festival episode, yeah.
2: Yeah, and then Mo sings his own version of like as he's dressed as the MC for cabaret. Money gets
0: you one more round. Drink it down, you stupid clown. Money gets you one more
2: round. You're out on your ass. Whoa! Ah, my back! So, uh, Cabaret, great movie.
0: We're not going to talk about it. Um, We could talk about that all day, but uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. It's an interesting sort of mashup of things because I feel like, you know, really what they're borrowing from Best Little Whorehouse is the plot, right? And I think the plot works really well with The Simpsons, you know, going to, like, why did they parody this? It's like, well, this movie is so much about, like, mob mentality and how easily people are sort of swayed by, I mean, these days, I think we call it, like, misinformation or whatever, right? Like, by the media and by politicians and, like, this town that's accepted a brothel there for, like, a hundred years within a couple weeks of, you know, televised newscasts turns against it and so does everyone else. And so, like, That's kind of the plot of uh, Best Little House, and that's sort of what's happening here, too. But, of course, in the end, they more or less save the Maison Derriere on The Simpsons.
2: We were saying before we started recording that, like, this might be one of our favorite episodes. I had forgotten, like, pound for pound how many great jokes are in this.
0: Great jokes. And also, all the dynamics at play are so classic Simpsons. Every person in the family kind of gets their thing. It's a little bit less maybe for Lisa, but, like... You know, Bart, Homer, Lisa, and Marge all kind of get their moments in this episode to really play their characters. You also get, like, lots of other characters in Springfield showing up it's a who's who of all of the sleazy people in springfield showing (laughs) up except for Krusty. Krusty's conspicuously missing yes that's true actually yeah yeah it's weird that he's not at the maison derriere but everyone else like all of the other people including mayor quimby are there and uh, and chief wiggum twice
2: clancy hey come on you did me twice
0: (laughs) right and at the end you get this again classic like mob mentality scene which is such a huge part of the whole sort of simpsons thing and then also the musical number, which, as the series goes on, becomes more and more part of the DNA, too, as we yeah. sort of talked about. Well,
2: it's interesting, because I was curious after I watched it, I was like, well, who wrote this? It's not a John Schwarzwalder, obviously. It right. is season eight, so it's during the Oakley and Weinstein years. But it's written by Richard Appel, and these are some of the other episodes he's written, which, like, if you want to talk about heavy hitters, he wrote Mother Simpson, which is... <laughs> arguably wow. one of the, like, sweetest episodes of the show. Mm-hmm. Bart on the Road, which is just a great classic Bart episode. The Secret War of Lisa Simpson. Oh, and wow. the, Yeah, the two Mrs. Nahasapima Petalons. Mm-hmm. And When You Dish Upon a Star. Some really, like, classic episodes written by this writer that, honestly, like, if you were to say his name to me, I wouldn't immediately be like, oh, yeah, he's a Simpson. Like, he's not, right. like, a... He's not a Wally Walidarski or a Jake Hogan or a John Vd or like Oakley and Weinstein. Like these names where I'm like, oh, yeah, he's a Simpsons writer. I would be like, oh, who is that? So but here he is having written like not only some of our favorites, but like some of the legitimately best episodes in the show. I oh, think that's, that's pretty... That's a good find. Huh. I also love that the show opens with what might be, like, the most 1990s joke. I don't know if you caught it, where they're watching Itchy and Scratchy, and the TV turns off, and the kids are like, Dad, V-Chip, V-Chip, and he's like, oh, sorry, yeah, What
0: I, What is that? I had no idea okay, watching so that, you, what the hell that is.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the V-Chip was a device. You basically plugged it into your cable box, And it sort of was like an intermediary between your TV and your cable. And it was the thing that basically blocked certain programming. Remember when we were kids, shows would always have the little like TV 7 or like TV PG, like basically like the equivalent of like the movie ratings. Mm -hmm. So as a parent, you could basically set... This is my understanding. We never had one. A friend of mine had one, I'm pretty sure. But, like, you could basically set up the parameters for, like, what was and wasn't allowed. So the idea huh? being that because they were watching a violent cartoon, the V-chip was intervening and wasn't allowing them to watch. But then, like, Homer is just Whoa. like, oh, whatever. So it's, like, a super dated, weird yeah. joke that, like, doesn't play anymore. And I never noticed it until tonight. But I, I, was I like,
0: couldn't oh. even tell what the hell they were saying. <laughs> I was yeah. like, what are they telling him to do? And just kind of let it ride. But... Now I know. That's yeah. fascinating. That must have only existed for a few years. I mean, it's like...
2: Uh, I feel like it was definitely a big thing in the 90s or like similar oh. devices to sort of like... One of my best friends in grade school, they had like a box hooked up to their TV so they could only watch like a certain amount of television. Like it, you had 30 minutes and after you're th- you were locked out. And wow. You know, if his friends came over for like a sleepover or whatever, his parents would have to enter in like the override code so that we could stay up playing like (laughs) Ocarina of Time for four hours at night. And that was also how we ended up watching like Baby Blue movies on city TV, which like, again, if you know, you know. Um, So this was a thing in the 90s of like ways to restrict television, which like now just seems so quaint in an era where like everybody has. Streaming everything on every (laughs) device all the time. My 20-month-old knows how to use YouTube, so, like, it's just... Right, right, right. Yeah, it's... But there's some other really great jokes, in, like, even in that first act. I love when Lisa's, like, think of all the animals we could, like, take care of, and Marge is like, you could take care of the animals here. Like, you could trim the cat's nails, and the cat just, like, <laughs> crawls across yeah. the screen. Right. And then... I also love when Lisa says, well, this could be my birthday and Christmas present. And Marge goes, well, you already used that up on that peach tree, which you never play with. And then she goes, what are you talking about? I, so I love funny. my it's peach tree. Thing. It's like a fully grown peach tree. <laughs> a fully grown tree. And then she runs out, and then Lisa starts singing, and she's like, oh, how I love my peach tree. Yes, I do. Sure I do. Look. Uh, here I am, flying on my peach
1: tree. Whoa.
2: Oh, all right, we'll go. It's so stupid and silly and
0: I love it. And it's such like a
2: kid's thing of like...
0: Yeah, it's it's not really a punchline joke. It's just like a funny, childish sort of thing, which feels very true to life.
2: And it's all in like Yearly Smith's performance, which as we've very much been establishing this season, like she is the star of the show here. A couple other favorite moments are when Marge is having the town hall meeting to discuss the Maison Derriere and -hmm. she's going on and on about the house and they're like, "Well, is it dilapidated? Is there something wrong?" She and she's like, "The house is perfectly fine." And then they're like, "Okay, well then, stop badmathing the house. Yeah. Like, it's yeah, just yeah, leave the house alone." <laughs> yeah, I love that. And then my other probably favorite joke is when Marge is showing all the people who have gone to the Maison Derriere. and so it's like <laughs> Clancy, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. and then it gets it gets to Barney, and like nobody says anything, and and Mo. <laughs> Oh, uh, Bonnie. I love that. I love Mo. (laughs) Mo's one of my favorite characters. Uh, And then finally, my other favorite moment in the show is when after they sing the song and Marge misses it and they're like, well, could you sing it again? And it was like, well, it was kind of a you had to be here moment. And she's like, well, (laughs) I've got a song. And she starts singing like the worst possible song before bulldozing down the house. Yeah, now we love the house. Well, I also have a song to sing. Mm. (coughs) Morals and ethics and carnal forbearance. Uh, sorry, I do love it when you drop by, Marge. I can't believe I almost forgot this. Probably one of my all-time favorite visual gags/slash moments in the show, which again doesn't play on a podcast, but it's when Grandpa shows up at the Maison Derriere. That GIF is literally like in Giphy or like the GIF keyboard on my phone. It saves like the ones you use the most. I use that. All the time. I don't like. I just I love that gag.
0: Him walking in, seeing Bart, and then like just (laughs) casually looping back out, (laughs) and then reopening the door.
2: Is is your name Bart?
0: Bart? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Does your father know you're here? It was his idea. In that case, I have a whiskey. Yeah, I love it. I love this episode. I think the thing that I appreciated it most, like rewatching it this time, was just that how quaint the moral outrage is. Right. And it's partly, of course, because it's like it's not a TV show where you can have like a, a an actual, uh, you know. Uh, bordello, I believe. is the, Bordello. The, I think right. that's the appropriate word. Right. A, a, a brothel. A brothel. brothel. Yes. There yeah, you go. You can't actually have a brothel on The Simpsons. But it's funny that they like went so far in the other direction. It's not like it's a brothel, but they can't really say it. It's yeah. like, no, it's a burlesque house from the 1920s. <laughs> yeah, with like, exactly. With, like, vaudeville comedians and, like, <laughs> ventriloquists. And there's not really that much nudity. There's, like, maybe what's a little the, bit of nudity. What's, the,
2: what's Bart's joke about, like, I tried ironing my birthday suit or whatever the hell it is?
0: Like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Couldn't get then, the
2: wrinkles out of my birthday suit. <laughs> yeah, <they're, laughs> yeah, like, there's some real good 1920s, like, style jokes. Yeah. which uh, Which there. is
0: classic Simpsons, too, of just, like injecting this stuff from kind of like the first half of the century right of like (laughs) you know the 1910s through the 1940s there's always so much of that stuff in the simpsons that like i am now only really starting to appreciate and this episode has a lot of it where it's just like it's totally anachronistic i mean at that point in time in particular there were no burlesque houses like that wasn't a thing that anyone worried about from a moral
2: outrage standpoint. Well, what's funny, too, is how, like, because I remember when we were in university together, burlesque kind of had, like, a renaissance. Like, there were a lot of, like, burlesque shows going on, and then Mm -hmm. the movie burlesque came out a couple years into us being at university together, which, like, again, if you're looking for something to watch, pour yourself a big old (laughs) glass of wine and tuck into burlesque if you want an enjoyable night with a friend. But you're right. Watching it now feels almost less dated because it kind of
0: came full circle, but like at the right. time probably was like extremely bizarre and dated. So yeah. And it, and it kind of does go back to them wanting to sort of parody that like Dixieland 1920s jazz yeah. thing and Bob Fosse and all of that. And that just create that world, right. That they can kind of play around in. Totally. Um, the other thing that struck me when I was doing some research about the movie as well for this, that I may or may not be a, a sort of influence on the song uh, at the, um, yeah, the 1979 Tony Awards. This show like swept, right? Um, right. The best Little horror House of Texas, and so they had a number that was like played at the Tonys called the Aggie Song, and it's probably the raunchiest number in the show, and in terms right. of like the lyrics and stuff like that. And so they get up on stage and they're performing it, but throughout the entire song they're censoring a lot of the words and the way that they're doing it is with a xylophone cue
1: yeah.
0: so i was thinking about that like when you know when they get to the point where they start swapping in spring with like we won't take a- you know, the boing sounds yep. and like all of that sort of stuff. Like, I wonder if there's any influence there or if it's just a total coincidence, in which case, yeah, cool coincidence, you know. Well, and you also
2: found the note that this episode ended up winning a primetime Emmy for Outstanding Music and Lyrics for yeah. Ken Keeler and Alf Clausen, which mm-hmm. of course it did. Like, it absolutely yeah. should. This number rules. It's, and I think, it, I think best. it
0: was Alf Clausen's first Emmy for, the, for this. Oh, wow. Really? For a song, wow. at least, maybe. So, like, that's pretty wild to think that it took till season eight to get like best song, considering yeah. all the things that came before this. Well, should we tuck into the movie now? Yeah, let's do it. Well, so it's your turn to, okay. to give us your one line summary of what? How would you describe this movie? One sentence. A, a hmm,
2: a small town in Texas turns against their beloved. I'm using air quotes here, whorehouse after a local television uh, reporter, we'll call him for lack of a better term, decides to expose them all the while Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton are sleeping together.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> that does It does kind of seem like there's two separate things going on.
2: I don't know, like it's kind of, the plot is very straightforward. So there's the chicken ranch, and it's run by Dolly Parton's character. Burt Reynolds is the sheriff of the town, and it turns out that they're secretly having a relationship. Sneaking and around. You might they're say. sneaking around. Sneaking around! With you. And uh, basically, there's this television reporter, sort of sensationalist, kind of like a Geraldo Rivera esque. <laughs> that's a super sure. dated reference. I don't even know what the equivalent now I mean, this sort of TV stuff isn't really a thing anymore because. Yeah. Cable news is just a shit show. But this was like this. I guess it would be like a hard copy or like a Mm. the Simpsons equivalent would be like rock bottom, like a sensationalized news expose show. um, Mm. And he decides that he's going to do an expose on the chicken ranch. And then the town turns against the chicken ranch because of the sensation, sensationalized news reporting and ultimately ends up being shut down. And then the movie takes a very bizarre, very serious turn and turns into like this very sincere love story. And Dolly sings, yeah. I will always love you, and then they drive off into the sunset. And
0: Yeah, it's almost like that song was shoehorned into the movie for some reason. I don't know why that would be. Yeah, I, don't know, um, I don't know, I don't know, well, we do so I
1: don't know. Well, so I did I did
0: find an interesting summary for this mm. movie. Okay. Um, so Dolly Parton, who plays arguably the lead role, one of the lead roles she wrote a lot of songs for this musical and also included Uh other songs of hers in the movie version, at least. And so one of those songs, actually, that was cut from the theatrical release was a song called, I believe, The Chicken Ranch. Okay. And instead of using it in the movie, they actually used it in the trailer. And it basically tells the entire plot of the movie
1: down at the chick chick chicken ranch where a lonely girl could have a chance and a homely boy could find romance at the chick chick chicken ranch the sheriff and miss mona for years had been red hot lovers and real good friends but trouble snowballed like an avalanche at the chick chick chicken ranch when melvin thorpe a reporter of sorts a self-righteous crusading fanatic got on tv like you wouldn't believe and pointed a finger right at it Exposin' Miss Mona, accusing the sheriff, then it rose to a roar from a whimper. It got all out of hand, a fit hit the fan, when Thorpe stirred up everyone's temper. The chick, 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 chicken ranch has been recouped into song and dance, and I know you wouldn't want to miss the chance to come to the chicken ranch. It's foot stomping, rub and sexy, good fun. Come on down and bring someone. There's good
2: times and trouble and fiery romance at the best little Texas chicken ranch. So long, partner. Y'all come back now, you hear? Man, watching that, this this movie's delightful. Like, I I have to, like, not to, like, I don't want to jump ahead, but, like, I'm going to because, like, I I, I was shocked at how much I enjoyed myself. Maybe it's just because I really genuinely had no idea what to expect. Yeah. I think one of the things that the film does quite wisely, again, we've been talking about this a lot, is that it establishes, literally from the first minute,
0: what, what you're going to get.
2: The narrator, as it were, J- Jim Neighbors of all people, <laughs> like he literally yeah. like turns to the camera and like breaks the fourth wall immediately. And oh, hi of, like, there! S- yeah, and sort of <laughs> sets up what we're going to see. So it establishes the tone very quickly. I wouldn't say it's an extremely memorable movie, but yeah. I really enjoyed it. And this was the other thing too. I have like a interesting opinion about it. At least how it relates to The Simpsons. I was surprised because I think this film is the closest I've seen something that isn't The Simpsons come to being Simpsons-esque. And we'll get into sort of like when we get to the stuff that feels like Simpsons jokes but aren't. Like I have a whole laundry list because it's just like the way the songs are interwoven – That Mm -hmm. sometimes they're driving the plot, sometimes they're just, like, for fun. The wacky characters, like, the Melvin Thorpe character that is, like, this comically ridiculous villain. Like, he feels like an Albert Brooks villain, almost like a Hank Scorpio type. I don't know, yeah, it was just, I was really sort of struck by how much it felt like a Simpson episode. But yeah. obviously I, it would say it's a full scale musical featuring Dolly Parton of all people.
0: Right. No, that actually makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought of it that way. But I think what I would say is that I think Colin Higgins has a very high energy, almost cartoonish way of directing. Have you seen mm-hmm. Nine to Five? Yeah. Yeah. And Which is, which is similar. A great in terms of, movie. Which is a great movie. Similarly, like, just fast-paced, right? And it's that kind of jokes-per-minute thing that The Simpsons also does of just, like, everything's constantly moving and there aren't a lot of wasted minutes in this uh, movie, which I think is pretty interesting.
2: But you also get that sort of sincerity... I guess it's more like a James L. Brooks thing, but, like, you get the heart and the romance subplot that maybe by the end is a little too heavy-handed and a little too serious.
0: Yeah, the, Um, the very end, I think, is where it falls apart. But there are some genuinely really nice moments that, yeah, like... I agree. It's got a bit of that James L. Brooks thing of like, oh, these are real people who like actually fight about real things. Yeah. Who like have a genuinely sweet dynamic that I, I really was surprised by. And I really appreciated it. it. Was like, you know, very unexpected for what I thought this movie was going to be?
2: Yeah. Same here. This is definitely one that, that just kind of took me by surprise because, again, I didn't know what to expect. But I within the first couple minutes knew, oh, actually, I think I'm really going to enjoy
0: this yeah 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 well should we back up and like let's talk about where the hell this movie comes?
2: yeah because again as you sort of alluded to like we both weren't super familiar with it and i it's funny when nate and i were sort of doing the short list of like what movies are we going to talk about i was like oh this is really interesting because we're doing a bunch that are like based on broadway shows and then we're doing mm-hmm. a couple that were movies first and then became broadway shows and then we're also doing a couple that like just are straight up movie musicals that have no sort of antecedent and i thought that this was like a dolly parton vehicle that didn't exist prior to the movie and then it was when we were looking it up i was like oh holy shit no this is actually not
0: only a broadway show but like a tony award-winning broadway show totally totally but there's kind of i think there's a good reason why it's been forgotten a little bit so in terms of where musicals are at because
2: it's 19 what what year did it open
0: it opened in 1978 off broadway
2: okay and then moved
0: to broadway i think maybe later that year so you have hair right starts to kind of open things up in, like, the late 1960s in terms of sex on stage, right? Right. Which I think is, like, a really important precursor to this because it could not possibly exist prior to that.
2: For those who aren't super familiar, Hair famously featured, you know, it was about the hippie movement, it was about the Vietnam War, it was very political, it was, v- right, like, v- very avant-garde for the time, and famously ends the first act with everybody gets naked on stage. And this was, like, right. groundbreaking, never seen before caused a great deal of controversy but it was like the sexual revolution has come to broadway it was right. a big
0: deal for sure and then you have rocky horror as well but that's coming from the west end so that's yeah it opens in 1973 in london and makes its way to broadway in 1975 so not that long before you're getting best little whorehouse in 1978 so there's this sort of building momentum of like yeah like you said sexual liberation coming to broadway and what does that mean what does that look like how do you deal with this and i think one of the important sort of pieces of context as well is that you're also getting a lot of backlash to this right Mm -hmm. of like especially in the united states like conservatives really being not happy about the way that this is kind of (laughs) playing out in media right like sexual liberation and all that kind of stuff how how unlike conservatives right exactly i know i was shocked to learn that yeah um But so that really sets the backdrop for this musical, because this musical is actually sort of all about that conflict in a lot of ways, both taking advantage of the new sort of liberalization of what you can do on Broadway, but then also kind of addressing the conservative sort of bent of people really policing morality and all of that kind of stuff.
2: And I think that's another one of those things that ties it back to like my thesis of like this is like a simpson episode like the yeah the level of satire here like it's really taken shots at like that idea of moral panics and mm-hmm. mob mentality which is as we sort of have addressed that's a recurring theme throughout the sort of golden age of the simpsons like, and obviously a very important plot point in bart after dark so
0: right and like i think they had long wanted to get bart into the context of working at a brothel i think or at a <laughs> burlesque house or something i think that had been on the board for a while but I could see how seeing this movie or seeing the musical would be like, oh, that totally fits within the world of The Simpsons. Like as soon as you see it, I could understand how they think that could be a good vehicle for a plot. So yeah, this is part of why I think this musical has kind of like not had the staying power of some of the other musicals that we've talked about is that most of the people involved are best known for this musical. Ah, okay. Right, so Peter Masterson and Tommy Toon were the directors.
2: Oh, uh, Tommy Toon, th- no way. Do you know Tommy Toon? Yeah, so Tommy Toon is like famous, like he's a tap dancer, I believe, but did you watch season four of Arrested Development? Where they putting- yes, but <laughs> well, was yeah, Tommy okay, fair Toon enough. that? Yes, so remember how uh, Tobias is trying to get a Fantastic Four musical made? Oh my God. And he no, goes. The- I don't remember that. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, so there was that subplot. Daddy needs to get his rocks off. Um, I don't even remember the context for why, but yeah, Tobias is trying to get a Fantastic Four musical made, and they go to see Tommy Toon to possibly direct it. <laughs> There are two other things that he is very, very well known for, or Uh at least are perhaps better known: Uh, the musical Nine, which is the musical adaptation of Eight and a Half, the Federico Fellini movie, yeah, that was subsequently misguided as a very frankly, very misguided, and was then subsequently. Made into into a movie movie. by Rob uh, Marshall, who did Chicago, and everyone's like, oh, this is going to be the next Chicago, and it very much wasn't. We saw that in theaters together. And then the (laughs) other thing that he's perhaps very well known for is a musical called The Will Rogers Follies, which is based on the life Hmm. of the comedian slash politician Will Rogers, who was a Hmm. vaudeville performer in the 1920s, famously died in a plane crash. The only reason I really know about this is it was one of the early shows that I saw. I was probably like seven years old. It came to Kitchener and wow. my parents were supposed to go and my mom got sick. And so my dad was like, Well, oh, I'll just take Adam. But in the opening number, it has all these showgirls and they're dancing around and then they turn around and they're wearing assless chaps. And my dad was like, oh, dear God, I hope my seven year old doesn't point out that he's seeing a bunch of bare asses. And apparently <laughs> I, it like, completely flew over my head and I didn't know. But anyway, t- so Tommy Toon like, famously directed and choreographed that. But
0: So I'm familiar with Tommy Fam- Toon. Famously but, is maybe a stretch. I mean, like yeah, yeah, okay, musical circles, but like I have never heard of that. Yes.
2: Fair enough. But that also, it's name's Tommy Toon. Like, it's a ridiculous name. I know. It's name. Like, so you know it's like... He was
0: born for the stage. Um, yeah, exactly. And then you have Music and Lyrics by Carol Hall, another person who, like, I don't really know much about. Yeah. So I think that that's a lot of it is that, like, a lot of the other ones we've covered, it's these big names who have done right. many musicals that they're well-known for that were sort of like a franchise unto themselves. And, and has been revived
2: really... over and over and over again for
0: years. Right. And really, like, this team, especially when you bring them all together, is kind of like a one-hit wonder. I mean, like, right. Tommy Toon has a few other sort of well-known credits, but the rest of them not so much on Broadway. But it did very, very well on Broadway. It ran for over 1,500 performances, you know, wins a bunch of Tonys. So one for best performance by a featured actor in a musical, best performance by a featured actress in a musical... Nominated for Best Musical, Best Book, Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical, Best Direction of a Musical, and Best Choreography. So really, you know, like that year, 1978, was like the thing. But I think one of the most interesting things about this is that it is based on a true story. Oh. Yes. Oh, Did you not know this? No, I didn't (laughs) realize that. Oh, man. So yeah, it's based on a 1974 Playboy article by a a journalist named Larry L. King. No relation to Larry King. (laughs) Right, not the Larry King. Not the Larry King, Larry L. King. I'm your moderator, Larry King. Now a word to our audience. Even though we're being broadcast on Fox, there's no need for obnoxious hooting and hollering. And so he basically like told the story of the chicken ranch, real place. It's an illegal brothel Uh in, in Texas. That operated from 1905 to 1973, so it was around for a really, really long wow. time. You want to take a guess at where it gets its name? Is it was
2: well, in the film, anyway. It's because it, money got so tight during the Depression that the patrons started paying with poultry. <laughs>
0: That's right. And- True story. True story. <laughs> okay, sounds, wow. Sounds like a, a Grandpa Simpson story, but it absolutely you know, does. Yeah. Back in the Depression. In those days, Nichols had pictures of bumblebees on him. Give me five peas for a quarter. You- people used to pay with chickens, and so that was where wow. they got the chicken ranch. It indeed like served athletes, politicians, members of the clergy. It is a lot like Maison Derriere in terms of that. You know, Skinner shows up, and then yeah. the mayor shows up, and you know all these sort of important people. Yeah, it's like, it was sort of a tradition. It was part of the fabric of this town, for better or worse. They even had a cozy sort of relationship with the police, where if someone came in and said something kind of suspicious, they would pass on the tip to the cops, and mm. so that they could like follow up on it, arrest them, whatever. So there was like this whole system, this whole understanding. This is in LaGrange, Texas. It's actually the subject of... There's a song by ZZ Top. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. I remember that's it from this, town. <laughs> okay, yeah, no that's this town, Hero. Okay, no it. way. That's this town, LaGrange. That's that's it. It's about this story as well. So then in exchange, like they were able to continue operating until this Houston-based news reporter, he supposedly got involved because he thought that there was a connection to organized crime. Right. And as far as I could tell, it, I don't think that was ever actually proven. There was no sort of like, you know, Rico case against the proprietor or anything like that but that's why he supposedly went after them definitely it was big business it was like you know a million dollars a year going going in and out of this place so to speak and so uh, (laughs) so um so yeah he goes after them you know and uh and yeah it, it gets shut down basically the sheriff again real person who actually like went to bat for this brothel he even circulated a petition to keep the chicken ranch open, collected several thousand signatures from the people wow. of LaGrange, Texas, but the governor eventually ordered him to shut it down anyway. Wow. So that's so literally the, story. the plot of
2: the movie. That's like the plot of the movie.
0: Right. The only thing that is not true is that there was no romantic relationship between Miss Mona and Sheriff Ed Earl. That did not happen.
2: There was no sneaking around. Sneaking around!
0: there was no sneaking around that's sort of like uh, taking some liberties but this guy king who wrote it he apparently hated musicals well, which is know. kind of fascinating I, I found this quote from him where he says As a writer, it irritates me when the story comes to a screeching halt. So a bunch of bank clerks in candy striped suits (laughs) and carrying matching umbrellas can break into a silly tap dance while singing about the sidewalks of New York. (laughs) Which, which he's a big on the
2: town fan. (laughs) I was
0: gonna say sounds a bit like some musicals we have covered on this. Yeah, a little bit. But apparently, Masterson and Hall were able to kind of like bring him around when they actually did a table reading and he got to see like you know, how it all fit together. And he's like, oh,
2: it's going
0: to actually work. But even back then, Hall and Masterson also wanted there to be a, a love story between these two characters. And King was like, no, absolutely not, because it's true story and that didn't happen. Right. Um, so in the original state show, that's not how it goes down. It's sort of implied. It's like subtext or... or oh, mid-
2: okay. So that's a change for the film, the relationship between Mona and Ed Earle.
0: Yes, yes, so that's a movie change. In the stage show, I think they sort of suggest that they had a relationship in the past at some point, right? but it's not actually happening in the musical. Interesting,
2: Um, because I feel like that's what makes it all work in the end, apart mm -hmm. from the ending, which we'll sort of address, but that's, okay, that's really, really interesting. Okay. Yeah, and
0: this is part of the thing with this series that's tough, is that, like, I've never seen this musical, and it's not easy to find recordings of the stage show So, like, I've only read about what the differences are. And, like, I would be very curious to see how this actually plays out on stage and which version I'd prefer because it's a very important through line for the movie. I'll tell you a little bit more about sort of how the musical handles certain things as we go along. But it's a slightly different story, and I I would be curious whether I'd enjoy it more or less.
2: You know, knowing the era that this is taking place. The Broadway show comes out in 1978, and we're going to talk about this... In a little bit more detail next week. Mm -hmm. But the thing to keep in mind is like 1978, we're still sort of pre mega musical era. Uh, right. A Vida, which is like, some say is like the start of the West End mega musical sort of moving in. That was also 1978. It opens okay. in the West End in 1978. But Cats, which I think is what everybody sort of considers to be the defining moment of like, okay, the West End mega musical has begun. That sure. happens in 1981. So okay. we're just before that sort of turning point where we're going to get to the sort of era that w- our generation certainly knows and loves and associates with musicals. But we're long past that sort of golden age of like the on the towns and the sound of music and everything. Right. And like you sort of said, I think it is interesting that we're like we're coming off of the back of like the sort of seventies maybe avant-garde isn't the right term, but like you've it's had seventies
0: like cinema though, too, right? Yeah, you've Christ had, Christ had hair, you've had
2: Jesus Christ Superstar, you've had Rocky Horror, you've had these things that are sort of like playing with the form, trying different things. And so making a musical about a chicken ranch um, <laughs> is maybe not, like, the craziest idea in the world, even though, like, looking back on it now. Like I said, when I found out that this was actually based on a musical, I was like, this is utterly insane. Like, I could see a movie being based on this, but, like, rich New Yorkers are going to, like, see this
0: on Broadway? Like, that just doesn't, I, yeah, but I you, can't When you think about that, what but, people are going to see in the movie theater, it's actually, like, not that big a leap i think in terms of like what were the big movies playing and right and that's what i mean it's like as people were attracted to scandal i think is a big part yeah
2: yeah no for sure and and you had a couple other notes in here too of like that universal apparently bankrolled the broadway show
0: yep like a lot of these musicals they got wind of it they bankrolled the stage show in exchange for also getting the movie rights And, like, I think a few of the ones that we've covered had a similar sort of arrangement. That's the sort of bridge between the stage show and then the movie. Um, And then the craziest fact, mm -hmm. there's a sequel? There is, in fact, a sequel, a stage sequel, not a movie sequel. uh, Very short-lived, did not last very long on Broadway. It is called... Uh, Go figure. It's called The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public. Okay. It opened in 1994. Can you believe that? so that exists that is something that exists in the world don't know much else about it because i think it basically doesn't exist yeah um, well m-
2: musical sequels are not a thing really right. and w- when they We're are they to. never do well are you familiar with the musical annie yeah like sure. about little orphan annie? yeah so there's annie 2 i believe it's really? called annie 2 miss hannigan's revenge <laughs> Which, no, yeah, I'm
1: pretty, yeah, that's I'm a pretty sure that's
2: thing. No, I'm 90% <laughs> sure. Hold on, I'm looking it up. Uh, kid's
1: revenge.
2: I'm oh, pretty sure that God. is what it's called. Uh, the first attempt at a sequel, oh no. which <laughs> means there's been more than one, was called Annie to Miss Hannigan's Revenge. And then there was a second <laughs> attempt with a different plot and score called Annie Warbucks. So there's been two sequels. Annie
0: to Warbucks, Annie. that's the one where she has the bald head.
2: Yeah, exactly. And then, famously, my favorite musical, *Phantom of the Opera*, has a sequel called oh, *Love Never Dies*. Right, which, which is actually a Bond movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it might as well be. And
1: years old.
2: But yeah, so musical sequels always misguided, never work. Yes. Um, so yeah, how did this film come to be? Because right, it, so I mean, it sounds like the show was a pretty big success. Big success. But
0: Big success. But the movie, you know, this is interesting, again, in terms of, like, movie musicals. Where are we, right? This is the wilderness. This is when movie musicals are really on the outs. The last successful Broadway film adaptation was Grease in 1978. Okay. So the year Uh, that
2: the the Broadway show of Warhouse comes out, right?
0: Right, exactly. But this movie doesn't come out until 1982. There's a bit of a gap there. And then other movies that are sort of floating around at this point, the film adaptation of Annie comes out in 1982 as well. It's a flop. does Which not do w- well. That's so
2: wild to me because, like, that's always cited now anyway as, like, mm-hmm. one of the great movie musicals. I mean, it sure. has – the cast is insane. Like it's yeah, I got, think it's been reclaimed it, a
0: little bit for sure. Yeah, for sure. But but not I, a box yeah, office I didn't, hit. I didn't realize it was a box office flop. Wow, okay, Interesting. There's not a lot of faith in the movie musical, I think, is the bottom line, which probably speaks a bit to how they approached this musical as well. Mm. But this is not the story for Best Little Horror House.
2: Yeah, like, so how did Dolly Parton get involved? Because, I mean, like, she's the big name at this yeah. point. And again, like, for this movie to be kind of, like, forgotten, but featuring the cast that it does, like, you've got yeah. Dolly Parton, Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise... Jim Neighbors, Uh, because, again, certainly I wouldn't associate Burt
0: Reynolds with a musical, but, yeah, Yeah. like, how did that all happen? Yeah, so my understanding is that initially how it was going to work was the folks from the musical were going to Mm. do the movie, including the directors. They were very close to actually directing this, Um, and then the studio took them off because they didn't think they were going to be a box office Toronto (laughs) figure, because these folks don't even have the credentials of, like, a learner and low situation, right? Right. Where it's like, that seemed plausible. This is, like, no way. Who are these people, basically? It was a studio decision, and they sort of said, okay, who's hot right now? Dolly Parton is coming off of 9 to
2: 5. If you haven't seen 9 to 5,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Dolly gives a incredible performance in that movie. She is totally. so incredibly charming and, yep. like... I was familiar with Lily Tomlin, familiar with Jane Fonda, and, like, I was familiar with Dolly Parton, the country singer, and, like, Dolly Parton, the sort of, like, campy character, but didn't really expect her to be good, and she
0: steals the film, I think. 100%. And, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, like, growing up, I feel like I had a lot of misconceptions about who Dolly Parton was and was, like, really unfair to her. She's a very, very talented person both musically and I think as an actress as well. And, you know, like her success in that movie really speaks to that in that she got a Golden Globe actress nomination. She won the new star, Golden Globe. You know, the song, 9 to 5, of course, mm-hmm. was a number one hit, won the Oscar for best song. And then, and she also won two Grammys for that too. So it's like, that was a huge hit, right? And so right. I think they're really banking on that in this movie. But, that makes sense. But they're also really banking on Burt Reynolds too, who at this point in time is considered one of the most bankable actors in Hollywood. Literally, he's right. like on the list for the last like four years, he's number one. He's a sure thing, which is yeah. wild because like, I haven't seen him in that much. And like the movies that he's best known for are like what, Smokey and the Bandit, Smokey Cannibal and the Bandit Run. 2, yeah, Cannonball, Cannonball Run, Run Cannonball, Cannonball Run 2. Run 2. Yeah,
2: right? And I, it's I like, guess Deliverance, which and deliverance, is- Deliverance, right. But that's yeah. like
0: 10 years before this.
2: Right, right? yeah to be honest i think the only other movie i can think of that i had seen him in prior to this (laughs) was boogie nights um which he's great and and like I i mean
0: revival because he like this is the thing that's kind of weird is like this is the end for burt reynolds basically right like until boogie nights he's kind of doing schlocky stuff that gets no attention Right. Um, But he is
2: one of those actors that like is a household name where like, okay, I may have never seen any other Burt Reynolds movies, but I know who Burt Reynolds is and have known who he is since I was like
0: even like grade school, probably. Right. Which is interesting because I feel like he actually occupies a very similar place to Dolly Parton in that way Mm. of like you just kind of know who these people are, partly because, frankly, they're both sex symbols. Right. Yeah, that's true. You know, like when this movie comes out 10 years prior burt reynolds has his famous it's cosmopolitan right his spread where he's naked and all of that and dolly parton was on the cover of playboy right she never actually did a nude shoot but she was on the cover and they did an interview with her they're both sort of like fried in people's minds as these sex symbols and that's what they're banking on in this movie that's a big part of how you get this to be a saleable movie and also dolly parton's country music chops right this is a country musical and so you really need someone who's going to be able to like bring that crowd to the theater. I think that's also part of what they're they're trying to do here. And then I believe Dolly Parton brings on Colin Higgins who's the director, who mm-hmm. also directed 9 to 5. I didn't know a lot about Colin Higgins.
2: Yeah, I didn't even realize that's who the director was mm-hmm. until you mentioned it, but
0: but um, like this is not a movie I've seen, which is probably a huge oversight. But the thing that he's probably most remembered for now is Harold and Maud. Oh, yes. Which, like, okay. I would never have thought that those two movies are by the same person. No.
2: But no, that not was, at all.
0: That came out of his master's thesis at UCLA, Harold oh, and Maude. Okay. Um, yeah, I
2: also have not seen Harold and Maude, but as I've said well known many though. times on this show, thanks to the AFI Top 100 whatever specials, I'm familiar with it. It has a very large cult following, I'm pretty sure, and like a Cat Stevens soundtrack that it's very famous for. And mm-hmm. knowing what I know about that movie and then this movie, you would Surprising. not expect it to come from the same mind. As right,
0: 9 to 5 definitely feels very of a piece yes. with this, but that's not my impression of Harold and Maude, so... Yeah, just another reason to go check out that movie. But yeah, other than that, you know, this guy, he grew up in Australia, flunked out of Stanford because he was like too obsessed with theater, basically, and ended up working as a page at ABC. Okay. um, That was kind of funny. And then he eventually came back to Stanford and did his master's in creative writing, which is where he wrote The Beginnings of Harold and Maude. Interesting. Um, And this I really love too. He got really excited about film because he went to Expo 67 in Montreal. Oh, no way. For those of you that don't know, Expo 67 was a really big deal for movies because it was kind of the precursor to a couple different things. Like IMAX is kind of born out of that. Um, And then also like really serious split screen is also sort of born out of that because there are these sort of multi-screen displays that were sort of immersive, right? And that was one of the things that if you went, you would like definitely remember and would have been pretty exciting, I think, about like what the future of film is thinking about that being the motivating thing for him and how that relates to this movie is interesting, I guess. But you see a lot of energy in this movie. I feel like that's Mm -hmm. the big thing. A lot of excitement about film. It's kind of infectious, whether you love the movie or not. Like it's hard not to get carried away. Yeah.
2: It's, it's a very competently made film, which sounds like I'm damning with faint praise, but also like it's a competently made like movie musical. And like, I think this movie is extremely well choreographed, but also well shot. Like it's a movie. It's a real proper yeah. movie, which we'll, yeah. we'll talk a
0: little bit more about that, but it doesn't feel like a film stage play. It feels like no. a movie, which yeah, I think absolutely. is hard to do. It's really hard to do well. Um, you know, apparently he, in preparation for this movie, this is his first movie musical, Right. And which is wild. Because so, it yeah, does not feel like it. Yeah, he actually watched old George Cukor movies. So going back to oh, our okay. My Fair Lady episode. And then he also watched Dr. Pepper commercials. Oh, okay. Apparently. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? No. This is just from Wikipedia, but apparently he said they have a lot of wonderful movement. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was like, okay, but you know, like I can see how like this could fit into like a Dr Pepper ad. Again, yeah. it's just so energetic and so invested in entertaining the audience. Yes,
2: um, that
0: I kind of get it. And then the other crazy thing is, this is also his last film as a director um, because oh. he he actually died during the AIDS crisis. Um, oh. so that's really sad, really really sad. But uh, hard to believe that you know he has these kind of like three movies that really stand out. And he had other movies as well. Silver Streak. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm familiar with Silver Streak. I, right. Not a movie
2: you could make today, though.
0: Right, right. Uh. But yeah, it's 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 pretty sad because I feel like there was probably a lot more that he had to give. The production of this movie, apparently it sounds like it was really tough. The original cast and directors were like basically ready to go and then they pulled the rug out from under them. So already right. that was like a big setback and I think, you know, cost a lot of money. There was a lot of rewriting, a lot of all this sort of stuff that was going on. Burt Reynolds, you know, asked for a lot of changes to the script because he wanted to sing. <laughs> um, Which, uh, credit where credit
2: is due, I thought we were going to get a Rex Harrison sort of situation. He's yeah. pretty good. Like, yeah, he's not, that, I mean, he's not amazing, but he's, he's better no Clint than... Clint
0: Eastwood. No, I'm just kidding. He's actually better than Clint Eastwood.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to say, he's no Gerard Butler in The Phantom of the Opera, but... Uh, he's no, no Lee Marvin. He's... <laughs> <laughs> no, he's no Lee Marvin. Uh, no, he's, he's, he holds his own up against Dolly, who is like a legitimately talented musician, so. Totally, totally.
0: And I think both of them, both Dolly and Burt Reynolds, were dealing with a lot of stress at this point in their careers. So Dolly apparently, like I was watching an interview, and apparently she was dealing with kidnapping threats to her family. Oh, okay. And also a recent, what she described as sort of like a professional breakup, like someone that she worked with a lot in her business life that she had to kind of like part ways with. And so that was very, very stressful for her. Burt Reynolds was sort of like on again, off again with Sally Field at the time. And I think was really on the outs at this point. So he was really like broken hearted over her. And apparently Dolly and Burt Reynolds both like fought a lot on the set. Parton sort of said that there were sensitive times when things were said, not meaning to, that brought tears to his or my eyes. She's the most, she's the most like, she's the sweetest, sweetest, like most, she's very compassionate, like good at putting herself in other people's shoes. So like, yeah, whenever she talks about it, she's very diplomatic about what sort of went down, but sounds tough. One executive gave an interview in ladies home journal in 1982 (laughs) about the production. And he said, the difference between Dolly and Bert is that when Dolly goes home at night and takes off her wig, she knows she's still just Dolly Parton. But when Bert goes home and takes off his wig, he doesn't know who he is, <laughs> which I thought was
2: phenomenal.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Yeah. But like I said, you know, that speaks to the fact, like, this is kind of the end for Bert Reynolds. He's coming off, like, the highest high in his career, and then this is kind of it. He's going to be in the wilderness for the next decade. Like I said, the changes from the musical to the movie, the biggest thing is the love story that doesn't exist. Dolly is the one who kind of revives the idea of there being a love story. Uh, King hated it. He also hated that the, the <laughs> casting. Mm. And apparently he hated it so much that he even, like, challenged Burt Reynolds to a fist fight in a, in, a, in a Playboy article. And Reynolds, when asked about it, like, was like, yeah, bring it on. And, of course, nothing ever came of it. Yeah, but, of like, you know, controversial. It's just so interesting
2: to me because, like, what was the other film? I, can't, I Maybe it was – I can't remember which we were talking about, but – when changes are made that arguably make the thing in the end
0: work, the original authors tend to be like, no,
2: you can't do that. That's it's like, my fair lady
0: was sort of had had that problem, but where they, again, they added a love story potentially where, you know, the original author was sort of like, no, this is definitely not a love story. You're, You're missing the point. And they were like, this only really works as a musical if there's a love story.
2: And I think this is the same thing. Like I can't imagine this film, if you didn't have the mm-hmm. love subplot, because the ending notwithstanding, like, it's kind of what makes it all sort of hold together. And there's comedy that comes out of it. Like, there's the, the scene where Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton first sort of reveal that they're sneaking around. Sneaking around! Oh, yeah. And she, so and good. she's teasing him about the small breakaway briefs that she wants him to wear instead of the boxer shorts. Like, there's there's so much, like beautiful like chemistry there yeah. and i just,
0: yeah like if if you they get feel rid like of a that they feel like a real couple in that scene like they, yeah. they it really it's it's very it's sweet it's funny and the thing that i love about that scene which i think is is actually kind of transgressive for the time she comes out in lingerie and then she's like i bought you this i would like you to wear it and he does it he goes and he changes i mean, I mean on, it takes a lot of convincing, it takes a little but, convincing yes. but he goes and he puts on the black tearaway briefs and then they go to. And bed. he has a
2: great line. What is it like? Oh, it looks like two bowling balls in a marble bag. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Uh-huh. And then okay, D- Dolly, her. Dolly's
0: like, "Well, you think very highly of yourself," which is just right.
2: like again, she gives as good as she gets. And like, I just, I,
0: I, I love I that. Think scene. If, I think, and I love that song. I think it's great.
2: Yeah, I think it's the
0: best scene in the movie. And it's, and it's definitely the best Dolly addition to the movie, I think. Because oh, that's, yeah, that's one just, of her addition, additional songs.
2: I really can't imagine this just working if it was just this plot of like, you need
0: something else to make it feel like a film. Right. I think that's what it is. So let me tell you a little bit of what I know about the musical itself. So the other things that were cut There are two other characters that were, I believe, shot and not included in the movie. Interesting. Angel and Shy. And both of them are women who work at the chicken ranch. And Shy, in particular, is like a newcomer. And so a lot of the plot is about her kind of like learning how to be part Mm. of the chicken ranch. And it's very Mm -hmm. like bittersweet because there's like a song about like the first time she's like putting on makeup and kind of getting ready for like work. And one of the songs that's cut at the end as well is called The Bust to Amarillo is what it's called. And it's sort of about just like how people end up in the situation where they're working at the chicken ranch and kind right. of that like in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty good situation. Like if, if you are going to be a sex worker, but, um, but like, right. but, but the circumstances that lead you there may not be so great. And like, and right. so it is kind of complicated and that's the one thing that I feel like is kind of like stripped out of the movie that sucks is just like, there should be a little bit more of like the sort of bittersweetness of like, you know, understanding like a little bit more of like where these women are coming from. And then at the end, it's like when the chicken ranch is shut down, it's like, that should also be kind of like a bittersweet thing instead of it. Just like, well, everyone got what they want. (laughs) You know, (laughs) your, your gym neighbors is very good. Thank you. Yeah.
2: It's, it is sort of the thing that, kind of goes unsaid throughout this whole film is like what leads these women to this circumstance there is the line that Dolly gives of like there's no pimps here or like if a yeah, pimp comes around totally. you send them my way and I'll take care of them like there's, mm-hmm. so they are kind of addressing that but like it does feel like that's something that's maybe not unsurprising for the era but certainly this has been a recurring theme throughout all of the films we've been watching of like rewatching these with a modern lens you sort of recognize the, the sort of omissions that feel like Ooh, well, like nowadays, this doesn't really fit or wouldn't get away with it. But I could see why they maybe chose to, in an effort to streamline things, remove those characters. Right. But they don't find a way to take those plot elements or the themes and emotions that are coming from that and sort of re inject it. You kind of get it with that hard candy Christmas song, but not to the real full extent.
0: Yeah. I actually find that song kind of like weak. In yeah. The grand of things, and I'd be curious to hear more about like some of those other songs. But anyway, in terms of performance, like this movie does really well. <laughs> oh, it really? Yes. So, this is what super, I'm saying is that it's crazy like, that this so, movie like, like doesn't exist, right? Yeah. It is uh, number one at the box office. Makes 11 million dollars on its opening weekend. Dethrones wow. E. T. Which is on its sixth week. Sixth week. Okay, so like that in and of itself is yep. It's the top-grossing film of 1982. Wow. Fourth highest-grossing f- live-action movie of the decade. What, what the... Like, okay. And, and it's the biggest weekend for a musical m- film ever at the time. How and crazy yet is it, that? And it's yet like, it just doesn't exist. This is like a movie that, like you said, I would never have even like, picked this out as a parody on The Simpsons, per se. Yeah. It has kind of like no cultural afterlife it's very strange and maybe it's just because the subject matter is kind of tough for the most part and like not the easiest thing to parody without like really putting your foot in it or angering people and the simpsons kind of thread the needle but like i could see why it's not like parodied in a lot of other things and not talked about as much because like this is the other thing about the whole sort of marketing journey of this is like they faced a lot of censorship like well you know, I, I already mentioned surprisingly right yeah but it's like the title of this movie was censored <laughs> a lot because the word whorehouse was considered obscene on tv radio all that kind of stuff so it had all of these different alternate titles that were like floating out there whenever people talked about it so it'd be right the best little chicken ranch in texas the best little body house in texas <laughs> the best little blank in texas okay, the best yeah. little house in texas Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. My favorite one was this announcer in Detroit that just clicked his tongue instead of saying whorehouse. So the best little <laughs> in Texas. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's like just while this movie does as well as it does when like people probably don't even necessarily know exactly what it's called. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, well, and really what was it wild. rated? Because it's rated
2: R. Yeah, so that makes it even more like insane because again, obviously I don't think it appeals to children, but like it's yeah. not a PG or a PG-13 may not even exist at this point, yeah. so it's like Adam, so it's, it's an adult.
0: It, this is the highest grossing R-rated movie ever until Beverly Hills Cop. What the hell? is <laughs> it this bananas? Like, I... but it doesn't exist. Nobody know. knows that it exists. I know it's crazy. It's crazy.
2: It's crazy. So, and it, so yeah. Well, and, and on top of all that, it's got Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. It's the follow-up to Nine to Five, right? Which was like also a
0: massive success.
2: It's wild.
0: Yeah. Ultimately, the original budget for this movie was supposed to be about ten million. Balloons to twenty-six million movie makes 70 million in its original holy crap yeah so it does pretty well and then on top of that it gets an oscar nomination the only oscar nomination it gets is actually for best supporting actor for charles durning do you remember who he plays or do you know who the director is is he the is he
2: like the senator or he's the governor. governor or whatever okay yeah he's
0: the governor so he has that number the sidestep which we'll talk yes, about it which is a great a great, a great moment in the movie such a but, great and a moment. very
2: simpsons-esque
0: uh totally number. totally yeah the way they depict the media and politicians in this movie very simpsons-esque as well very
2: yeah exactly
0: um so yeah i mean should we dive into the actual movie itself
2: yeah yeah for sure
0: let's start by just like talking a little bit more about these characters and about the cast we've kind of talked a little bit about dolly a little bit about Bert. But then we have, the, we have the sort of supporting cast as well.
2: Yeah, let's talk about it. You've got Dom Deloise playing yep. Melvin P. Thorpe, who is yep. the sort of, like, investigative reporter, I guess. But when Sheriff Ed Earl goes to confront him about saying, like, don't run this story, like, don't get involved, his whole thing is like, well, I, I, I have to get involved because, you know, the public wants the truth and I need to tell them the truth. All the while, you see him getting dressed and he's putting on fake shoulders to make himself look broader. Right. And he's putting right. on a corset so he doesn't look as heavy Mm -hmm. and then he stuffs a sock down his pants to make himself look more endowed so the whole you know it's the hypocrisy of this person who claims to be a voice of truth and reason is pulling one over on his audience just as much as the things that he's apparently exposing
0: which again feels very simpsons-esque totally i feel like a decade ago i wouldn't have necessarily picked up on this but his accent is also all wrong it's completely wrong (laughs) He has yeah. kind of a Louisiana accent or something like that. It's Southern, but not Texan. <laughs> no, and he reveals that he's actually from Jersey or something. He, he moved to Texas six years ago, I think is what he says. Right. I think it's definitely implied that he's putting on this accent. It's not supposed to be an accurate Texan accent. So yeah, there's like lots of nice layers to all of the fakery going on with him. Seems to be wearing a wig, like all that kind of stuff. Were you super familiar with Dom DeLuise before this? Because I'm not really that familiar with his work.
2: So I assumed that he had to be in this movie because they were trying to, again, play off of the Burt Reynolds relationship. Because he was in, he's in the second Smokey and the Bandit movie, and then he's in both Cannonball Runs, I believe. So, like, he and Burt have worked together and kind of become, like, this comedic duo. So I was like, okay, that must be why he's in it weirdly this is very bizarre but the thing I know him from Mm -hmm. was do you remember Lamb Chops like Lamb Chops play along like Sherry Sherry Lewis and Lamb Oh, Oh yes I do Okay, so there was the TV show. Hi, everyone! It's Adam from the future. So, at this point in the episode, I go on about six-minute tangent trying to figure out what this Dom DeLuise, Sherry Lewis, lamb chops connection is. Uh, We're going to spare you having to listen to it right now. Needless to say, uh, we're going to jump ahead to the point in the episode where we get back on track with the film. Uh, But if you want to hear this very, very long-winded, bizarre side tangent, it'll be at the end of the show. Okay, back to the show. All this to say is weirdly yes I am familiar with Tom yeah. Deloise apparently uh, he's he's also in the Muppet movie so you've probably oh seen yeah he him is in that. the Muppet movie yeah. yeah he is in the Muppet movie as one of the like many many cameos yeah and okay. and yeah, failsafe so. too which we talked yes about. weirdly oh he's also in a movie called Silence of the hams oh which God. was like <laughs> at the peak of like remember there were like all those Zucker brother parody movies mm-hmm. this was so this is a parody of like Silence of the Lambs kind of but it was, like, made by, like, an Italian guy who oh didn't have a grasp of language. Anyway, I just remember the box art from, like, at Blockbuster. It is Dom DeLuise, and he's got, like, a butterfly on his nose. And he's, like, because it's, like, a parody of the right Silence of the Lambs cover.
0: Anyway. Um, wow. We went, yes. we went down a and- deep <laughs> Dom <laughs> we DeLuise real, rabbit hole. Yeah. Who knew? All right. Um, let's talk Charles Derning. Um, yeah, let's talk Charles Durning. Okay, then. so so which is a
2: name that sounds familiar, but I don't know why.
0: Right. Okay. Well, so I got I have some research here. So couple things. First of all, this guy is actually trained as a ballroom dancer, and to the okay. point where he actually taught at a Fred Astaire dance studio in New York. It's kind of interesting. Like a lot of these folks actually have a little bit of musical background. He was in a musical called Queen of the Stardust Ballroom, which I've never heard of. Yeah, never before. Heard of that. But you know, again, he has some chops. Charles Durning is also in the Muppet movie he, <laughs> okay he's the villain who owns a frog leg restaurant oh the, okay yeah yeah yeah.
2: that's how I that's what I know him from yes <laughs> yes I and he's trying to capture Kermit the frog because he wants to eat him
0: right right exactly so there's that he's also in a lot of other Burt Reynolds movies so I feel like both Dolly and Burt are bringing a lot of their people into this right. movie right And so, yeah, Charles Durning's another one of those people. He collaborated with Burt Reynolds on five movies from the 70s to the 90s. So he he had, like, a long-running relationship with him. Um, And some other movies you, you almost certainly remember him from, The Sting, Dog Day Afternoon, Tootsie, Hudsucker Proxy, and Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Okay, so, he's so in a lot I know all of, of these movies. Stuff. I just don't... I don't remember what he, he is in any of these. <laughs> yeah, so he's in he all of these really in... good movies.
2: <laughs> so I'm just looking it up on IMDb. He is Lieutenant W.M. Snyder in The Sting, which I don't remember that character. I mean... I, I, presumably. Great, yeah, and then he's Moretti in Dog Day Afternoon. I, I, I can't, don't, don't really remember. So... Weird. He's in, like, some of the best movies ever made, and yeah. yet I don't necessarily remember him. But, yeah. okay,
0: good for him. But, so but he had a good career. He's great in this, too. Like Oh, he's so good. I mean, I, so good. I, like, there are actually a lot of good numbers in this movie, but I think Sidestep, which he does, is my favorite.
2: Ooh, I love to dance a little sidestep. Now they see me, now they don't. I've come and gone. And Ooh, I love to sweep around a wide step. A little
0: swath little the song is great. His performance mm-hmm. is great, and it's one of the best blends of filmmaking and musical performance in the movie. Yeah, where it's like it's they're really actually—it's well, really well edited. to yeah. like super clever. It takes place over multiple scenes, so you're actually like yeah. moving through time, different settings, and there's also some like trick editing in it as well. Like where it's kind of hard to explain, but. He's sort of dancing. It's in the Texas State House, the first movie to ever be shot in the Texas State House. He's dancing very well to this musical number. Mm-hmm. And the camera is sort of panning across the space to follow him. And then he'll sort of di- disappear behind like a pillar or a wall or something like that. The camera will move back and he will reappear behind another pillar and wall on the other side of the room right. and continue dancing. And it's like clearly there's a cut hidden somewhere. But like, it's very adeptly made and performed. I love that number. And I think he's fantastic in this. And again, like true definition of a supporting role where he's only in it for what, like 10 minutes? you know yeah he's barely in it but like it is a memorable performance
2: for how little he is actually on screen
0: it's sort of the climax he's kind of the Wizard of Oz in this Burt Reynolds character finally decides like okay he's got to stand up for the chicken ranch so he goes to the capital and is going to meet with the governor and when he does it doesn't work out basically but that's when this number happens Uh, and then you have Jim Neighbors (laughs) Gomer Pyle himself Gomer Pyle Pyle Shazam (laughs) Pile Shazam, but yeah, I mean, what do you say about a guy like Jim Neighbors? He's, um, you know, <laughs> what like best known for his role as Gomer Pyle? Um, yeah, it's this is his first feature length film. Wow,
2: I mean, he's fine, like, he's yeah. kind of outclassed by everybody else in the movie, but like, he serves his purpose. He keeps doing the thing where he's trying to tell Ed or Earl something, and he's just like, shut up, I don't care. Like, yeah. the
0: relationship they have is good. He's actually another Burt Reynolds guy. He was in Cannonball Run 2. He was in another movie right after this with him called Stroker Ace. No idea what that is. But, you know, he had like several movies where it sounds like Burt Reynolds was sort of like, I want you in this movie. Like it's a cameo or is it whatever. One interesting thing about him is that like Jim Neighbors had like uh, record contracts throughout the 1960s and 70s. And he does not sing a single note in this movie. (laughs) Nope. No, figure he sure doesn't, um, huh, so that's kind of interesting. He sang back home again in Indiana before the Indy 500, the race from 1972 to 2014 every holy single shit. year, with like a few exceptions, but for like illness and stuff like that, right? But like, oh, good th- for yeah, him. this is a guy who, like, clearly <laughs> sings, you know, I don't know how good he is, but like, yeah, but it's just interesting that he doesn't have a singing role in this. That's I funny. mean. Overall, I'm kind of just like this character kind of doesn't really need to exist. Yeah, he's functioning as a
2: narrator, and yeah, yeah, you probably could have written around it if you needed to. It feels like he's just there, sort of for like cheap laughs, and maybe to like capitalize on the association with Gomer Pyle to like again put bums in seats. I don't know. I feel like when you've got Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds, you're probably not relying on that. But who knows, right? Like maybe it's just to pull in a different demographic or something.
0: Yeah. it's kind of a mystery to me, but, you know, he's there. <laughs> we've talked a little bit about the sort of filmmaking, I guess, aspect of this. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it's just, I think it's one of the most cinematic movies we've covered in this series in terms of it, like really properly feeling like it belongs in a movie and couldn't be done on stage.
2: Well, and you get the benefit of it coming out when it came out, because we've, sort of discuss this like when do movies sort of become quote-unquote modern Mm -hmm. and you know you've sort of posited that star wars is the film that sort of changes everything so this obviously comes out post star wars it comes out post greece for all of the things i could say about greece i think it's one of those films where it feels like a film it captures the choreography really well it uses cinematic techniques really well it feels big Mm -hmm. and it's doing something that you could not do on stage And this sort of feels like it's in that same vein. There are some, you know, crane shots and there's interesting uses of montage. And it's interesting comparing, you sort of alluded to it before, the Aggie song in this compared to the version at the Tonys, and just how completely different they feel. Right. And how it works so much better here, I think. Yeah. Even if it is weirdly the most sexual number in the movie, (laughs) and the most bare ass I think I've ever seen in a film.
0: For Um, sure. And that is the cut-down version. Okay, well there you go. Yeah. I agree. I feel like that is weirdly in a movie about a brothel. That is probably (laughs) the most sexual, most erotic scene in the movie, and it's taking place not in the brothel but in, you know, the change room of a football team. Uh and Which
2: so we haven't really addressed this. There's this whole subplot here. Right. Which you told me is based in truth. I believe so. The Alumni Association for this Texas
0: College. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Whatever a- not the Alumni Association, I don't think. The but No,
2: they say the Alumni Association. Really?
0: OK, yeah. <laughs> OK, go ahead. Go on. So uh, anyway,
2: uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but basically like whatever team wins this football game, yeah. the Alumni Association, I'm pretty sure, pays for them to go to the chicken ranch so that all of the men can be serviced, Yeah. which is the most insane. Th- and then like when they arrive, it, it's like a senator or yeah, whatever. Senator's he's, yeah,
0: senator's there. Like, he's the one who tells them this in the after the game, right? Like he comes in right. and is like, yeah, yeah, we're going to go do this. And, and he and, goes with them.
2: And he goes with them, and then he pretends not to know Miss Mona, and then she's like, I've known you for like who are you? You're not fooling anybody. And he's like, Ah,
0: okay, I'm just just you know, just joking around. It's always a business doing pleasure with you.
2: Yes, that's a great line. So there's the song, the Aggie song, which is the song after they've won the game and they're in the locker room and they're basically talking about, Hey, look at us, we're all gonna go have sex now. We're going away. And it's a bunch of like shirtless dudes lying Who dancing. Ripped. Like it's like it, Yeah, it is an incredibly homoerotic number for yes. what is essentially supposed to be a bunch of heterosexual men about to go have sex with women.
0: Yeah. But I mean clearly I mean, it's, it's it's it is worth mentioning that Colin Higgins is gay. And You don't say. Yes. And apparently the extended cut. The bootleg extended cut of this scene became quite popular at a uh, Chicago uh, gay club and was sort of like a cult hit. And you can actually find the extended version on Vimeo. And most of the extended part, I mean, number one, the dance sequence at the end, which is phenomenal. It It is is genuinely phenomenal. Has another, it's like twice as long, if you can believe that, which is kind of too much but then the other chunk that gets extended is the shower sequence where they are completely mm. fully naked and they yep. sing an entire verse naked and it's almost like the Austin Powers gag where he's naked and they're like moving teacups right. around and, and covers just, it's yes, kind yes, of yes, like yes. that right like where oh, it's like okay that's actually kind of you can, you can of funny. basically see everything but like just barely not making out right. the details right right and again, right again it's right. like you know you see some breasts in this movie, but like you actually Which, don't see a lot of sex between men and women. No. And, you don't, I, I, and when including, you do, it's including like Mona and Sheriff Ed Earl, you don't, you don't really see them, you know, get it on. So it's like, yeah, it's, when you for do see our rating, sex, it it's... feels pretty tame in some ways, but then you get this scene where there's actually like a lot of nudity.
2: Yeah, it's weird because in the opening number, when they basically sing the song about the brothel and they're sort of establishing everything, there is sex on screen, but it's like shadow puppetry, for lack of right. a better term. There's no like on screen penetration or anything like that. But yeah, like there's, you're right, for a movie about a brothel where theoretically sex is a very key component, there is very little sex in this movie, which is why it is a little bit. Because sub- even like, I don't remember there being much in terms of swearing. There's basically Not no really. violence, so like I feel like it's a movie it's that's just rated R, just because there's no other rating at that point. Like PG-13 maybe doesn't exist, but it's because that the PG-13 what, is what, created because of Raiders, Raiders right. of the Lost Ark. So and that was was that also 1982?
0: Uh, yeah, we're rated right in the 1981.
2: Ballpark. So maybe
0: yeah, if but, if but you know, like I think it really is like number one, it's the nudity. Because there is a yeah. lot of nudity, but it's just not always that sexual. And then the other thing is just the content. I think it's the subject matter that gets yeah. them. It's like the name is being censored, right? <laughs> and, like, right. Like, so like the very premise of the movie is considered obscene. And Yeah, it's, it's adult and, content. And, and honestly, like the lyrics of the Aggie song are more explicit than like almost anything you hear in film these days it's pretty rough. So like, yeah, I feel like that stuff is maybe what really gets them. I'd be curious to see how they break it down. But yeah, I mean like in terms of the filmmaking, just going back to that for a second, like one of the interesting things I noticed is that there were five credited editors on this movie. Right. Yes. I super weird. That is wild. <laughs> yeah. And I, and so I was, I like was trying to like look at who these people are and like, why would they, cause there's no explanation I found as to like why there were so many people on it. But my guess is that the original cut was two hours and thirty minutes. Oh wow! Uh, like that's, the director's cut. That's long, right? And so, like this, because
2: hey, this, I, yeah, I, I, for for as much as I like this movie, I, I surprise, surprise, I thought that it could have been shorter. No, um,
0: really? Yeah, I know, right? I I thought this one was perfect in terms of length. Uh, I think they wrap up the ending a little too neatly, but I thought in terms of length, I thought it moved along pretty pretty nicely.
2: Yeah, like, of all the movies we've watched so far, like, Mm -hmm. it definitely moves the best. Mm -hmm. But again, I think that final act, because it's just not working, like, I kind of just feel like you could tighten everything. But two hours and 30 minutes, I think we would have been
0: bordering on, like, slog territory. Oh, for sure, for sure. And this is why I think they removed shy from the film was that like that was one of the things you could like fully just lift out right and say like we're just not gonna have that character and cut around it and so that's i think also part of why jim neighbors provides the narration is because Mm. that gives you some way to paper over any of the sort of like story hiccups that might arise from cutting it down right um
2: that actually makes a lot of sense
0: right right but, like, in terms of who these people are, it also kind of gives some interesting hints about, like, why would you have five? Basically, you have two Dolly Parton slash Colin Higgins guys, Nicholas Heliopolis okay. and Pembroke J. Herring, right? That is the best name I've ever heard. Which one? Pembroke J. Herring? Pembroke J. Herring. Yes, that's... Uh, I'm, I'm stealing that for sure. Seems quite proper. You have a Colin Higgins guy that he's worked with before... Uh, named uh, david brotherton and then you have one burt reynolds guy named walter hanneman Jeez. that worked with him i think on cannonball run and then a total or relative newbie i guess jack hofstra who like hasn't worked with anyone else that i could see on the production so like all of those folks are involved but it's like again you have like someone from the director and you have people from both of the stars weighing in right i think the other thing that i'll point out coming back to Bretherton, is that he's the one who has, like, the most musical chops. Particularly, right. he won the Academy Award for Best Editing for Cabaret in right. 1972, which is possibly one of the best edited films ever made, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So you... I, I would say beat out only by all that jazz. <laughs> right. Like, you know,
2: the other Fosse masterpiece.
0: Right, but it's a, it's a movie where, like, literally the editing is the only way that movie works. Because yes, it's all 100%. about intercutting and the way the numbers fit in with the story, and like it's so mind-boggling how they put that together. So like he works on this, um, and I like I would say you know it's like this is not cabaret, but like there is some really nice like montage and and mm-hmm. intercutting and interesting stuff that goes on in this movie that is above and beyond like some of the other movies that we've watched in this series. Well, and
2: it, it does the thing that in recent years is sort of like the main complaint that people have with sort of modern musicals. And I think it really started with, with Chicago ironically, even though that film was trying to pay tribute to Fosse's style. Um, Right. But that movie is arguably overcut because one of the things that Fosse was so good about was like just letting things play out in masters or Mm. with very little editing. You know, we talked about this with on the town, you know, those numbers sometimes like full musical numbers that go for five minutes have, like, all of ten cuts in them or whatever. Right. So this film, I would say, is kind of similar in that it it really, when it needs to, it lets shots play out. Like, the Aggie song is a perfect example of, like, when they're doing yeah. the line dancing, it's not, like, constantly cutting to close-ups and all this other stuff. No, let's just let this incredible choreography play out. Or when you've got the song The Governor Sings where it's doing, like, the trick stuff and it's or it's trying to f- sort of further the plot or further time and all this stuff. Like, it's it knows how to play with editing to use it to its advantage, and I think right. that is... And when to use it, it and of... when
0: not to, because, like... Yeah, exactly. You know, like, a lot of it is, like, in between things, there are montages to kind of connect the dots or explain things, or, like, yeah. there's one really great montage, I think, when Ed Earl is like, I'll take care of this whole controversy, and he calls up a bunch of people, and it's actually kind of a very Simpsons-y sort of moment as well, where it's like, he calls up all these people, and they're all kind of like... Uh, yeah no I can't help you nope can't help you nope can't help you and then it just cuts back to that scene and like all of the work that went into like setting up all those shots just to get that one you know piece of dialogue I I I love that sort of stuff or I think you also called out there's there's a great scene when the television news story is going out
2: oh yeah that's it's so good
0: right you're seeing the story but then it's cutting away to all these different scenes of people watching it in these different contexts right And you get like an old folks home and then someone's holding up like
2: a a liquor store. (laughs) Yeah, I would say it's the most Simpson-esque joke in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. A guy is holding up a, it's either a liquor store or a convenience store, but both the thief and the owner or the cashier or whatever turn to watch the TV and are like, even they are sort of struck by what is being told. But like, it's just so Simpson-esque that like the guy is literally holding a gun to the guy's face and then they're both like distracted by the TV. Right. Yeah. Totally. But yeah, it's a great example of like using this sort of montage to like, again, further the story and do something that you could not do on stage. Right. 100%.
0: So yeah, like are, you know, we talked about like some of the the numbers I think that stand out to but are there any others that you feel like we should call out before we kind of move on?
2: It's funny. The songs aren't necessarily memorable in the way, like, an Andrew Lloyd Webber song is memorable in that, like, you leave the show humming all of the songs, mainly because it's, like, four songs that have just been, like, repeated over and over for two and a half hours. Right. But the songs are genuinely great. They're catchy. They're fun. They're lyrically interesting. I'm not a big country-western music kind of guy, but, like, I really enjoyed, like, even that element of it. It kind of... They're not, like, traditional musical theater numbers. Mm -hmm. Like, they kind of feel a little bit more contemporary and like pop music-y in a way even though like it's obviously country western but you know what I mean like it doesn't have that traditional like musical theater sort of thing that I think can be a little off-putting for people yeah totally
0: well and I, I think like it helps that the ones that are sung by like Charles Derning and Don Deluise have a bit of like satire in them too like mm-hmm. they sound like they could be a Simpsons song where it's like they really do where they they're really, really parodying like, like you know, this sort of hypocrisy of TV personalities and politicians. I think they do a great job at that. There aren't that many numbers in this that I'm like, eh, yeah, that's fine. You know, like most of them are very memorable. Mm-hmm. This love story, I guess, that runs throughout the whole movie, you know, how does it work for you in terms of, you know, like the chemistry between them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we've sort of addressed this, but like, I I think it's crucial to making the film work. Mm-hmm. I think both Dolly and Bert have very strong comedic chops obviously but it's the chemistry and the relationship between them and the jabs and the barbs and all of that that I think is what I found so charming and delightful I I think where it kind of falls apart is where it becomes a little overly sentimental at the end when (laughs) she breaks out into I will always love you yes the Whitney Houston song which is actually originally was written by Dolly Parton right I texted Nate to be like, wait, holy shit, I Will Always Love You comes from this movie. And you, you corrected me to say, no, no, no. She had
0: already written it and recorded it and then decided to re-record it for this movie. And then it... Yeah, a total pro at this. She had a lot of re-releases, so she re-records it for this movie. So already yeah. hit back then. She re-records it. I think it breaks the top 50... Again, she wrote so many other songs for this that weren't used and found ways to reuse all of those in like subsequent <laughs> albums, subsequent movies. She reuses a song that she wrote for this in Rhinestone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> which is I think her next movie, which I think was a bit of a flop, but like yeah she just she was really um efficient, I guess. She, She's a business I mean, lady. she is a, a smart she
2: is a smart you know? business lady. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Yeah. But
0: but yeah. Anyway, that was a uh, sort of sidebar. But yeah, you were saying at the end when that she sort of breaks out in "I will always love you." It feels unearned, even though like they've spent all this time building up this relationship between them. But they don't have that kind of relationship. I think is kind of the thing that feels well. Out of
2: place. I, I think the thing that, for me, the movie kind of peters out in that final act because you look at the poster and it has that sort of Mel Brooks esque Mm. sort of like animal house style. So you expect a very zany, wacky movie. And for the most part, it delivers on that. It's maybe as zany and wacky as a musical comedy can be where you're still going to have like big production numbers. You've got that sidestepping number. Like there are these scenes that are very silly and played for laughs and work really well. And then all of a sudden in the final act, You get Hard Candy Christmas, which is kind of this like schmaltzy, you know, I understand what they're going for. But it's like that last sort of 15, 20 minutes of the movie. It takes a total turn and it's just like there's no more wackiness. It's just very serious. The house is closing down all of these people are now without jobs and have to, like, figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their lives, and then there's this romance subplot, and she's going to sing I Will Always Love You, which, like, again, for our generation, and this is, like, the looking back thing, but, like, has become immortalized by the Whitney Houston version, so, like, you you have this association of it being, like, this big epic love song sung to, you know, another person. So it's just, like, tonally the film shifts in that final act in a
0: way that really kind of doesn't work. And I I think that's the thing is like in the original musical, I think it pulls that same shift, but there's no love story. That part doesn't happen. It's more just focused on the serious sort of sadness of like the closing, all these people moving on and like, what does it mean for everyone? Like that's kind of more of the focus. It's a little bit more like melancholy and bittersweet. I would be really curious to see how that plays out because it's hard to imagine in this movie because it is so different.
2: It's interesting because usually in shows like this, you're going to end with like this big show stop and number where everything turns out okay or like there's some last minute twist and then, you know, everybody sings and dances in, into the sunset or whatever. And this right. doesn't have that really. Right. It just sort of has a reprise during the credits in a kind of silly way. Oh, it's just
1: a of country play. And that
2: was the thing for me that works the least in the film. But yeah. for the most part, I think the love story between them is interesting it's played really well it's very very believable i love the power dynamics between the fact that even though he's the sheriff of the town like she really is calling the shots and like she kind of has him wrapped around her finger and it's hard to imagine it not being dolly and Bert because i don't know that it would necessarily work otherwise
0: i think their performances are great i think their chemistry is great I love the sneaking around scene, and we've already talked a bunch about that. Sneaking around with you. But I also love, like, some of their other sort of, like, tender moments. They go up to the lake at one point, and they have this sort of, like, heart-to-heart conversation. Mm-hmm. Apparently some of that was actually improvised. It's crazy. The part where they're talking about Mary Magdalene, which is super thematically <laughs> relevant, uh, yes. improvised. And then, yeah, they have a really great fight, too, you know, near the climax where he tells her to shut it down for, like, a month. And she doesn't. She, like, does the big... Uh, she services the egg. Oh, oh, yeah, team. we haven't... We haven't we'll get even into discussed
2: that. the most obs- ridiculous plot point, right.
0: but yes. Right. So she does that, and he's mad that she lied about it, and then she's mad that he didn't protect her, and it's like, it's... Yeah. They're both really good in that scene, I think. Like, yeah, it's, it, that is another great scene. Authentic, um, so...
2: Remind me how it... Or, it, as to the best of your knowledge, how the theatrical show ends. Because in the film, basically... Edero comes back to the chicken ranch and is like, I'm sorry, like, we're, we're shutting you down. There's nothing we can do. She right. sings, I will always love you. He basically leaves and then comes back and then says, No, I'm going to marry you. And then he, like, whisks her off her feet and they get in the car and they drive off into the sunset. And right. then, then it's just like a reprise of one of the numbers. And then it ends with, Y'all come back now, you hear? And, yeah. like, that's it. Like, everything's wrapped up in a neat little packet, as Homer would say.
1: Really? I mean, the, sorry if it sounded sarcastic.
0: Right. I mean, like, From what I can tell, I don't think that the stage musical has a happy ending, is the short answer. Right. Act two, you have like Hard Candy Christmas, right? Which is in both. In the stage version, then you have a finale right after that. Right. I don't know exactly what the finale is. And then the last song of the show is this song I mentioned, The Bus from Amarillo, which is Miss Mona singing Alone. And it's a very sort of like melancholy song, again, about like... You know the life of a sex worker basically like looking back on her life and like the choices that she made and it's not like moralistic about like oh i wish things were different and you know whatever but it's just sort of like you know bittersweet things were tough to get here and you know this was sort of a safe place but now it's gone and now we're all moving on again right and we don't know what's coming ahead of us as much as this musical is very like fun and bubbly and satirical and everything i do kind of wish that there was a little bit more of that edge at the end because like it is a sad story it kind of sucks that they slap on this sort of like and everything worked out at the very end of like literally just a Jim neighbor's narration being like yep and they all lived happily ever after like yeah you know, kind of like as though nothing happened that mattered in the story other than like miss mona and sheriff edderall getting together you know like there's not any moment where she kind of like takes one last look at the house and closes the door or you know like mm-hmm. just anything to just kind of like mark that like this is the end of something instead it's just kind of like this happy ending which is is feels like we're going to get nice.
2: married and everything's going to work out but it's like well is it though like what what about all these girls who left and like it just kind of feels like they glossed over the yeah ramifications of shutting this place down
0: no, not to mention i'm not sure if you if you sort of like clocked the weird order of things but like So Miss Mona has a housekeeper named Jewel. Real person, very interesting story there. Apparently she acted as kind of like a bouncer for the real chicken ranch. And unfortunately, one of the groups of people she left out was people of color who were not allowed at the chicken ranch. But she was a black person who was doing... Anyway, so it's kind of like a crazy thing. But real person. And in the movie, she's left behind when they leave... (laughs) so so it's like you know it's just Mona and Jewel hanging out at the house and then Burt Reynolds comes and is like I'm here I love you and then he like picks her up sweeps her off her feet puts her in the truck they drive away and Jewel is just left there alone at the house but you never (laughs) see her again you just like see the shot zooming out as they're pulling away and then you see Jewel's car eventually leave the house too and it's just (laughs) like this is so weird like what a yeah. weird sloppy ending that is. So, anyway, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, it just feels
2: it feels rushed and like you said uh, and maybe it's a side effect of like some of the stuff that got pulled. They had to just wrap it up with the voiceover from Jim Neighbors, but yeah, I don't know. It's it it's the one thing in the film that didn't work for me and it's kind of bummed me out cuz it was like otherwise this thing worked so well, was doing so well, and it just doesn't stick the ending. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, like I said, it was such a fun little romp for two hours. Totally.
0: And I think, you know, like, I Will Always Love You is a great song, but, like, I feel like that's one of the biggest problems with the ending and the way that the story resolves is just that, like, it really feels like, you know, probably Dolly Parton just really wanted that in the movie, and so the ending is written to make that fit within the movie, and it just doesn't yeah. totally work. It's not really the right kind of song. It doesn't really fit with the story. Um, yeah, I
2: think it also feels like she
0: she feels so strong throughout the film, and
2: then that number kind of makes her feel like, I don't know, it puts the power on him in a way, like Do you you know what I mean? Like, it feels like she's lost her authority, and she's trying to say, like, no, you can't go. Like, I will always love you. Like, please. And then, like, he does. He takes her, and he's like, I'm going to make you my bride. I don't know. There's just, like, you're right. That song feels out of place. Yeah. And look, again, the reality is that song was then became a huge hit for Whitney Houston in The Bodyguard, another film. And so it's just it's one of those moments that you kind of are pulled out for a minute because you're like, wait, what the hell? And, like, maybe in 1982 it would have less of that effect, but post-Bodyguard, you just, you can't sing that song without the
0: audience going, "Mm, this is
2: Whitney's song, so. Yeah.
0: But, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a disappointing ending, but it is actually so short. It's such a small part of the movie in the grand scheme of things that I'm kind of like, well, you know, can't win them all. So, Adam, like, uh, you know, what about the things that feels like Simpsons jokes but aren't? You know, you sort of mentioned you had a whole list of these. So what, what were some of the other moments that jumped at it to you?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think it was on, like, my first or second page of notes. Like, I wrote, God, this whole thing feels like a Simpsons episode. Yeah. Like, it, it just has both in terms of, like, the kind of th- what they're addressing and the approach. But there are a lot of gags that are very Simpsons-y. So, like, you know, right off the top in the opening narration where where Jim Neighbors is sort of explaining the history of the chicken ranch. He talks about how, like, the World War I veterans went there and they had such a good time that they, like, sent their kids yeah. back at, after World War II. And it's like, it, it does, like, a cross dissolve and the sign sort of changes. Jewel has the line of, y'all come back now, you hear? And and literally all the people who have just left immediately, like, do a U-turn and then, like, come <laughs> rushing back in, right. which is just, like, such a Simpsons-y gag. Early in the film, you know, you're sort of introduced to Ed Earl and like what he has to deal with on a daily basis. And he has to deal with a mule has sat on Miss Modine's car. So right. it's supposed to like establish the like quaint little town that they live in, but it's just like such an absurd image of literally right. a mule sitting on the hood feels of a car. It like, feels like a cletus bit. Yeah, very much so. When he's talking to Melvin P. Thorpe and he's he's sort of going through all of these scams that he's uncovered and he's talking about the nuts in the chocolate bar. He's like, ah, it needs to have a full nut. A half nut's not a full nut. And th- that again, like that whole run just feels like one of those sort of like improvised Albert Brooks runs like you like the sort of the mattress, uh, the, ha- or, sorry, right, the, the hammock the district. Hammock district. <laughs> yeah. Like it feels very in line with that. Sure. And just like Melvin's character in and of itself. Like, you know, Dom DeLuise could have played that character on The Simpsons right. and it would feel 100% at home. I think of all the stuff, like even like stuff we watched season one, like no other movie we've watched kind of has this many jokes that really like if they had been in a Simpsons episode, like they would feel totally at home.
0: Like this, any of that. Totally. 100%. Cool. Well, should we talk about our, our final uh, takeaways here? What's your verdict? Would you, would you recommend it? I mean, it seems like we've (laughs) kind of already addressed that, but what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I genuinely
2: surprised by this one went into it kind of, with trepidation Mm -hmm. you know i i remember pulling it up on imdb and seeing that poster and just kind of going oh yeah i need to figure out what this thing is all about right but was kind of going into it being like this isn't gonna be any good i was expecting burlesque i was expecting a movie that would be so bad it's good and you just make fun of it for two hours and i was not expecting to be so drawn in by the characters so drawn in by the love subplot to find the performances as charming as I did, to find it as funny as I did. Mm -hmm. Like, this was a genuine surprise to me in the best way possible. And, yeah, I think people should definitely try and track it down. Like, it's unlike anything else we've watched this season and, you know, even last season. To your point of, like, considering how successful it was, the fact that it effectively doesn't exist, nobody remembers it, I would kind of like to see that change because I think there's something there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would agree. I think it's, you know, what stands out to me is the performances, I think, are really good. The songs are really good. Almost every number is memorable. And then, yeah, the actual, like, filmmaking, right? I mean, like we were talking Mm -hmm. about, it's just like it feels like it deserves to be a movie and not just a stage play in terms of the way that it uses the medium. So I think that's really exciting. You know, I think the only downside is really just that missed opportunity with the ending and maybe kind of addressing some of the themes a little bit more completely but like yeah it's super entertaining and i think definitely worth checking out what about other movies or other media that you think people should check out if they like this or you know for anything similar
2: the whole time i was sort of thinking about that and i was like what am i going to recommend as like extra credit because to be honest i couldn't think of anything else like this. The whole time I was watching it, I was like this reminds me of something that I've experienced before, but I don't know what it was and maybe it is just like, again, Simpsons episodes. Mm -hmm. In terms of other musicals, what comes to mind is musicals that are sort of like more adult-based humor or dealing with adult themes. So I think of things like Avenue Q, which is a sort of parody of Sesame Street, but is very sort of very body show. It's actually written by um, the guys who wrote Frozen, like the music to Frozen. I don't think I do that. So they've had a very interesting career. They also co-wrote the music along with the South Park guys to Book of Mormon, which is another show that is very sort of like this adult humor. You wouldn't want to take your kids to it, but it is like it kind of tonally feels kind of similar it's sure. satirical and then also there's a musical which is based on the frank oz movie dirty rotten scoundrels i don't know if huh. you've seen that movie no. but there's a musical that's based on that huh. and it's kind of got a similar tone similar vibe in terms of films i mean we mentioned uh, burlesque it is tonally not similar at all but the subject matter is maybe kind of similar And that is another one where like again just like get a bunch of your friends together and you know get some drinks going and just like laugh at that I think they covered it on how did this get made and it is like very much a movie that would be on how did this get made because it is so like I genuinely do love it but it is so bad it's good and then have you seen The Birdcage? I have yeah totally it's dealing with similar-ish tones. I think it's originally based on a French play called La Cage à Folles, which then became a musical called La Cage à Folles. Mm-hmm. but it, you know, it's dealing with these sort of like adult themes, and it, Robin Williams
0: is phenomenal in that
2: movie. What about you? I mean, what came to mind for you?
0: I mean, I, I also struggled a little bit, because this is kind of unique, but I mean, I think the obvious one would be 9 to 5, right? Not a musical, yes. but, you know, tonally, uh? well...
2: It's, the film is not a musical, but it has subsequently been adapted that's into a musical. That's true.
0: Dolly Parton wrote the music and lyrics, I believe, for An And Allison
2: Janney of the West Wing. I think she plays the Jane Fonda character. Hilarious. Or I did it. not yeah, know that. I can't, But yeah. And she actually yeah, can sing. So, um, so there you go. But yeah, that's a great. If you enjoyed this, you will definitely enjoy 9 to
0: 5. Yeah. Very similar sensibility. It's very fast paced. Very energetic. Also has Dolly Parton. Fantastic cast overall. Like, it's a really good one. You know, I mean, this is a completely different movie, but, like, if you're interested in the sort of filmmaking side of it, like Cabaret, I mean, it's a great movie. Also about...
2: <laughs> tonally could not be more different. Completely but, uh... different.
0: Definitely not a fun romp, but it is an astoundingly good musical, and the filmmaking is is great. So I'll always recommend that one. And, like, the subject matter is similar in some ways. Mm-hmm. The other one that I haven't seen, but I imagine might be very uh, relevant, would be Nashville which I've heard is really good.
2: Mm. Um, I've also heard that's very good. I've never seen... I, Robert Altman is like a complete blind spot for mm-hmm. me. I don't think I've seen any of his films. Yeah, but.
0: same. I think just like in terms of, of course, the country music sort of connection, but also like the satirical aspect of it and the sort of nexus of politics and entertainment and news and mm-hmm. like all of that feels very, very relevant. So the, maybe that, that one's kind of on my my list for what I might watch in the near future. So that's that's all I got. That's what I came up with.
2: Well, thank you all so much for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. Coming up next time, you know we're nearing the end now of our musical series, mm-hmm. and we're gonna be uh, taking a little trip to the backstage of a little Broadway house, and we're gonna be hanging out. With a chorus line, yeah. uh, Nate, you you are not familiar with this one at all, as far as I know. No, right? not
0: at all. Not have not seen the stage show, have not seen the movie, so it's going to be a completely new experience for me. But one of my favorite Simpsons parodies, of course, is <laughs> yeah, is of this. For so sure. we'll we'll get into all that.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be really fun uh, knowing our histories. I th- I'll be very interested to hear what you think, because not to color anybody's expectations, but the film adaptation is sort of very famously not beloved by fans of the musical, but um, yeah, we'll uh, see so where it'll we be land. interesting to... Yeah, we'll see where we land. So yeah, be sure to come back next week for that. And in the meantime, we shall... See you around
0: the flex. See place. you the place. Did you, were you super familiar with Dom DeLuise before this? Because I'm not really that familiar with his work. Weirdly,
2: this is very bizarre, but the thing I know him from was do you remember Lamb Chops? Like Lamb Chops Play Along? Like oh. Sherry, Sherry Lewis and Lamb oh, Chop? No. Yes, I do. Okay, so there was the TV show Lamb Chops Play Along, which was on when we were kids. And then, like, a few years later, there was like a. Spin off sequel, and I can't remember what it, I think it was called spin-off? like Sherry's World. Lamb
0: Chop's Play Along. <laughs>
2: okay, hold on. I gotta now it's I need to my mind. um, Lamb Chop. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sherry Lewis. She had a, another show called This Is This Is All. I promise we're going somewhere with this. <laughs> okay, yeah, so Larry, Lamb Chop's Play Along. What, what do you mean it's not here? What the f? It's not here. Uh, hold on. Maybe it's just not listed. Oh God, was it like Canadian and therefore it's not in Wikipedia? Now I've really, now i really de- derailed this. Um, okay, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> they had lamb chop special, Hanukkah special. Um, Interesting. Yeah, no, exactly. Charlie Hurst music. Okay, what the hell? So. Okay. Okay. Well, this is very bizarre because I'd have had this a apparently. had once where
0: Dom DeLuise was in a. <laughs> where this of apparently. Lamb chops play along. <laughs> this apparently doesn't.
2: Okay, so I apparently this doesn't exist. But my memory was there was this other TV show that was like <laughs> it. It was like called like the Sherry Lewis Hour or something. Okay. Where it's like it wasn't Lamb chops play along, but it was like contained. Lamb Chop, and Dom DeLuise played, like, a bizarre, like, he was, like, a chef or, a, like, a weird character. Oh, anyway, God. I knew him from this wow. TV show that apparently doesn't exist, and now I'm going to have to, like, g- okay. Anyway, so yeah. I'm familiar with him, but, like, I, I don't know that I had ever seen anything he was actually in apart from this TV show that apparently doesn't exist. <laughs> sure.
0: okay. Um right. um, Fair enough. Well, so, so then the, one of the other sort of key players we have is the governor, right? So this is Charles Durning. He's the guy who wins uh, or is, I think is nominated for uh, Oscar for oh, Best Oh, okay. Supporting. I found it. Okay. Found what it. is Sorry it? Sorry to
2: interrupt. Okay. So apparently uh, it was a TV show called The Charlie Horse Music Pizza.
0: Oh, and okay. Because Charlie Sherry Horse is a character. I remember that is
2: another character. Yes. Yeah. So oh, Sherry Lewis, Charlie Horse, and their friends run a musical pizza parlor. And Dom Deluise plays a character called Cookie. He's like a cook, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and the funny thing, <laughs> this is the other funny thing. Oh. There was there was a chef, a Louis. I believe he was Louisiana,n named Paul Prudhomme, okay. who was like kind of kind of overweight and wore like a um, not a beret, but what like the little. Yeah, yeah 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 homer... like a, a newsy cap right Yeah a newsy cap and remember when Homer Homer yes. g- wears one when he's big fat homer and I think this cookie character is Dom Deluise like riffing on the Paul Prudhomme okay
0: g- guy <laughs> he's uh, also be doing I, the same put... accent as he's doing in this movie
2: Yeah so hold on I'm going to just put this in in the sh- in the chat just so you can see because like I I don't I don't think I'm insane um so this is here's a picture of Dom Deloise, and then yeah, there he is. Is that him in this?: <laughs> I don't know. That is just his IMDB photo. Great. Uh, and then here's Paul Prudhomme, uh, um, home, who is looking like a real Southern boy. Um, oh, indeed.
0: Yes, you're right. It is a, So I feel like that I
2: feel like that must be what that character what, Anyway, I I can't believe we've gone down this rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> yeah, <Tom> so <laughs> All this to say is weirdly yes, I am familiar with Tom yeah. DeLonge.